Hi, this is David Levy here with the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This week, a special episode about storytelling. Enjoy the show. I'm pretty sure, like, we've all had at least one hungover show. Or, like... Yeah. I actually, I've, I don't think I've ever had done this hungover, but I have, like, I've been, like, out till two and then come back to the Podcasting office. is a lot like Sunday school teaching in that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you would have been, like, one of my favorites. Because I, I, so. I had some <laughs> mean Hebrew school teachers. <laughs> Put it this way, I'm still friends with many of my former students who are now grown-ups, some of whom work in the New York theater scene, which is just mm. hilarious. Oh, fun. Um, a special shout-out to Ali Glickman, who works in marketing at 54 Below, who is my mm-hmm. sixth-grade Hebrew school student, <laughs> and now oh markets all of my cabaret wow. shows. Oh, oh that's, that's so awesome. Cute. That's a great story. All right, so uh, here we are. This week is a special edition of Maximu to talk about storytelling shows and the storytelling scene in New York, and we have a special guest star with us today, so why don't we start off with introductions? Hi, I'm David Lawson, a storytelling comedian and one-man show guy. <laughs> a one-man band. Oh, I'm Liz Richards from Fuck Yeah, Great Plays. Uh, and this is David Levy from Fuck Yeah, Steven Sondheim, and let's dive into this. So... This show came about pretty directly because David is a listener and has been talking to us about storytelling. And finally, we were like, we should just go ahead and do this. I've been bothering you with emails. It is never a bother. For months. And it's funny because we were talking about this last night that the storytelling scene in New York is so big. So I always knew that it was going on. I was like, I just don't have time. I don't know what to sift through. I don't know what's good. So... I need an episode like this uh-huh. to sort of push me totally. forward. Like, I've been listening to storytelling podcasts for a long time, many of which are recorded live, many of which are recorded live in New York City. But I'd been to a show here and there, but this is the first time we really like attempted a deep dive. David, tell us a little bit about what we're doing. So storytelling. Storytelling is people alone on stage telling stories that happen to them. They are jokes and punchlines in these stories, just like their stories in stand-up comedy. But unlike stand-up, which typically overwhelmingly consists of jokes and punchlines, storytelling sticks to a narrative arc, something that actually happened with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And within the storytelling genre, there are comedy storytelling shows that are at comedy club venues like the People's Improv Theater and the Creek in the Cave. And on the Comedy Central show, This Is Not Happening. Then there are more dramatic storytelling shows that are in more literary circles at venues like KGB Bar, Housing Works, and on the podcast, The Moth Radio Hour. And there are some shows like Risk and Mortified that often walk that line between the comedic and the dramatic. And I personally came to the storytelling world from the world of one-person shows, which I've been doing for about 10 years and which we will be talking about on this episode. And the, the best way I could describe the Venn diagram of storytelling and one-person shows and overlapping. Th- that's going to be a little buzzword. So if you're playing a maximum drinking game this week, I would recommend of, drinking on the words yeah, Venn diagram. David, David and me, uh, yeah, we use that one a lot. But uh, let's see. The best way I can describe that Venn diagram of storytelling and one-person shows overlapping is that one-person shows are often evening-length shows based around a certain theme or a certain story that take on a similar style to the five- to ten-minute performances that you usually see at a storytelling show. And that's what we are here to talk about today. Right. And I think that storytelling is a lot like pornography in that you sort of know it when you see it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, we've definitely been to one-person shows that are not storytelling like that. Yeah. St- uh, storytelling shows, to me, I was thinking about... It's funny that you bring up solo shows because I kept thinking about it as sort of running alongside stand-up. And it's a format thing for me that stand-up is sort of, like you were saying, punchline and set-up punchline, set-up punchline. And that this is sort of a long haul, maybe with some asides and detours, but that it's one overarching 
cohesive piece. Um, and it's funny. I think if we're kind of completing the Venn diagram, I think the other two pieces are to think about monologue shows, which are generally one person shows, but sort of a distinct subgenre of people like Spalding Gray. Um, oh, yeah. And then also uh, cabaret, because a lot of these take place in cabaret spaces. The show we saw last night, there was a piano on stage because clearly they do music stuff there too. I've seen some great shows that are maybe storytelling, maybe one-man shows. I'm not sure. Uh, at the duplex. And there are a lot of people who I think move comfortably between some of these overlapping circles, if not all of them. So like, they're definitely cabaret people who also tell stories, but who are not comedians. There are definitely comedy people who are also cabaret people, but don't tell stories, et cetera. Yeah. It was really interesting with, well, with the shows that gave us programs, which wasn't all of them to look at people's bios and a lot of them, you know, storytelling is just what they do. There are also a lot of writers and essayists uh, who came out to do these and that was sort of my way into storytelling was through stuff like This American Life, which tends to draw from the type of people who write essays for Esquire and The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that those same people, when they they read those essays on the radio, and then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump into telling stories on a stage. And that's sort, that was sort of my way into this world. Yeah. And I already said a little bit about it, but my Venn diagram of like overlapping into the world was more the Spalding Grays, the Mike Daisies, John Leguizamo's HBO specials, which made me be like, where can I find this type of stuff? Yeah. So the first show we saw was the Antagonist Storytelling Series or Ass, which happens the fourth Monday each month at Over the Eight in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It is co-hosted by Nick Padilla and Jake Hart. The show is two years old now. I personally am always skeptical whenever anyone has no stories of themselves being a bad person. And <laughs> and that's all that ass is. The show is entirely made up of stories of people intentionally doing bad things. So suffice to say, ass definitely leans more towards the comedic side of things. David and I saw it. Uh, well, what did you think, David? Well, so this was the first show that we saw during this little um expedition spirit into storytelling journey yes with me i had a great time at it um looking back through the lens of everything i saw since it feels like it was definitely like the i don't know frattiest is the right word but like <laughs> stand-up comedy has a reputation for douchey guys who like drink a lot and do a lot of coke and and fuck around and uh don't necessarily uh, accord each other or the women in the room the most respect. And I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that, like, this was, like, a douchey show, but it definitely was, like, the closest to that vibe of anything we saw this week. Well, isn't the the, the premise of the show is people behaving badly, right? I mean, it's that... Sure, but, like, for example, there were, I think, four stories we heard that night. One of them was about someone who had several DUIs while he was an alcoholic, uh, well, he was like a, what do you call it, like before you're in recovery, an active alcoholic. Uh, he's now sober, but was sort of like telling these like war stories. And the other three were all combinations of like sexual conquest and like sexual conquest while on a lot of drugs. So like there are ways to tell stories where you're the villain that are not just about like, and then I fucked this chick and came all over her face over by the garbage can. and Which is actually pretty accurate uh, telling of one of the stories was I that, heard. That that was was, I... Yeah, I honestly, I'm glad that I missed this one. <laughs> um, I was I was stranded uh, out in Texas and couldn't make it, and uh, I, I honestly don't know if I could, would be able to sit through a show like that. I mean, it wasn't. I, I I might be overstating it a little bit. Like, it definitely wasn't. It wasn't the kind of thing where I was like, 
oh, I want to leave. Um, it was the sort of thing where, like, oh, I don't think I'd want to, like, hang out with these people at a bar <laughs> after the show, which is not the case with some of the others. And, and I think it's interesting because at least one of the other group shows we saw did have stories that were about um, sex work that I did not find to be uh, sort of cringe-inducing in the same way. Um, look, it's also just uh, in terms of the, the atmosphere – I got there a little early because I was starving and I wanted to have a burger. And while I was having a burger in the bar area, like some of the other folks from the show were like hanging out and talking. And I was not privy to their conversation, but like in the way that like certain words kind of prick up your ears, like I heard the word faggot like three or four times. Now, I don't know the context. They could have been telling a story where it's like, and this guy called someone else a faggot. And so I got up in his face and told him not to. That very well could have been the story. But like in terms of like atmospheres that I want to place myself in, like, my least favorite of the week. So I do want to actually get, because you mentioned Brandon Sager's story that night, which I actually thought the best way I could describe the, the show is you will hear something wild at ass that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this actually happened. Brandon Sager's actually was interesting, his drinking and driving story, because he mentioned, like you said, that he was sober now. But ass is definitely the type of show that he mentioned he was sober and there was a slight redemptive value and immediately Nick and Jake will bust this guy's balls for being sober. It's definitely, like you said, very much more of like a comedy club raw type of show. You know, like we heard the Jake Hart, who was one of the hosts that night, had a story about being at a sex party in a sex dungeon and uh, I about that his, story. his ex-girlfriend asking, being like, you know what? Let's see what happens if, if you tie me up and whip me and see how this happens. And there was some <laughs> emotional pull to that one as well. But definitely, like, the Jake always ends the show, because I had been a few times before with saying, I hope you feel better about yourself. And if those stories are the type of thing that makes you sound like you will sit there and be like, you know, I do feel a little better about myself. <laughs> Ass is very effective at doing that. Um, and we I should just add that despite the sort of frightiness of the night, there was one woman storyteller of the bunch. Uh, Allison Kelp. Yeah, she had a story about uh, peeing the bed. Specifically <laughs> peeing the bed when she was sleeping at dudes' houses. Yes. <laughs> um, and even then it was like, it was, again, like sort of the like frattiest sexual conquest story I've ever heard a woman tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> like not, and it wasn't about sexual conquest at all. It was, it was like, that that was like the mise en scene was that um, it took place when she was having one night stands, and then I pissed in their beds. I don't know. It was I appreciated what went into the show, but it was of all of them, I'd say it was the one that was like the least for me. The next show that we saw uh, was in my neck of the woods in Park Slope. It was called How I Learned, and How I Learned takes place on the last Wednesday of every month at Union Hall, and it is hosted by Blaze Allison Kearsley. And we saw their anniversary show. It was their seventh anniversary, um, which is tremendous to think that a little show like this can can keep plugging along. I was really into it. it so the, the premise of the show is each, each month they pick a theme, like how I learned X. The one that we went to was how I learned to get lucky because lucky number seven. And, and that's just broad enough of a topic that everything more or less linked together, but it was um, – it wasn't all like the same. And I think one of the things that I really admired about these, these storytellers is that they didn't go for the obvious in terms of getting lucky. And it wasn't just like, yeah, I thought, Oh God, is this just going to be an hour of like sex conquest stories? Um, and they weren't. Like, yeah. One of them was one of, well, two of them, I guess were sort of sex 
adjacent. <laughs> I would, I'm thinking of the gown night story that Lana Massey told and um, Jenny Luce's um, lost tampon story. I forgot about sort that of one. like <laughs> where they they weren't sexy. They weren't about sex, but they were sort of sex adjacent. Right. Well, but, that's why I, I like those so much better than the ones that asked because yeah. they they took place sort of in the world of sex. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of them took place specifically in a, in strip clubs, told from the perspective of someone who was a stripper. And you know, just the it, it's funny you should mention a lot of Massey's story because I go to tons of shows like these and I perform in a lot of shows like these and my friends are always saying, What have you heard lately? And if I can sum something up in one sentence like I think I can with hers, people's you know, the ear, their ears perk up. And I and I told someone the day after, like, Oh, who was at Union Hall last night? I was like, Oh, there was a stripper who told the story about making men lucky to not have met her, but to have survived her. And someone was like, What is that story? So that like log line for a Lana Massey story. Did, did I hit that on the head? Yeah. 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 I think she even said that on stage. Yeah. 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 I also appreciate she told a story that took place on Gown Night, which is a phenomenon I am not familiar with. This yeah. is our yeah, second maximum in a row we're talking about strippers, yes. by the way. Um, gown, <laughs> gown Night, for those who aren't aware, is sort of like the prom of the strip club, which is where everything is the same except the strippers are wearing long gowns. It, it's really and does that classy. Once a year, once a month, once a week. Um, I am not a hundred percent sure. Uh, I was I was really um, hoping you. I'd be like, wow, Liz is really delving well, into gown um, night here. <laughs> well, um, I, I worked briefly at a stripper, oh. not as a stripper. Um, I worked in the marketing. Although department. it's okay if you did. No, no, no. I worked in the marketing department. Like it's not even <laughs> cool. Um, it was my first job in New York. It's a long story. Wow. Um, but I only remember like two gown nights in the six months or so that i worked there mm. uh so i don't i don't know how that varies club to club but, but I, anyway i appreciated that like for a story about gown night she sort of dressed up she didn't wear a gown but she definitely was like dressier than all the other storytellers and i'm pretty sure that was a calculated choice yeah and she also um when i looked at her bio she is not really a performer she's one of the more one of the essayists that right. we talked about she was on book which is very rare yeah, for these shows she brought her, but she brought her script with her yeah, although I didn't think that that took away at all. Me either. No. I actually really wanted to talk about uh, Josh Homer, mm-hmm. who... Oh, the housing lotto. Yes. The housing lotto story. Which that was to, great. To me is a great example of... I did mention the line before. I'm always talking about storytelling walking lines with people. Josh Homer is a club stand-up comic, and he had this great story. He got evicted. He got jury duty. He got passed over for a promotion because he was doing jury duty. And then he won the housing lottery. And basically, it was how he learned that sometimes your life has to fall apart a certain way for it to come back together better than it was before. And it was like a, it was like a, it had a great emotional pull. It had some great jokes that I think would have played over at a show at, say, like The Creek in the Cave or something like that. Josh Elmer was, was excellent. I thought that was one of the best performances we saw in any show we saw. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things that I thought was really interesting uh, is that. And and I don't mean to to pick on Blaze in particular, but I would say across the board, almost, almost, at the group shows, the hosts were sort of the weak links in the evening. And and I sort of wondered if that's that's just the luck of the draw with the shows that we went to, or if that's – I was speculating with Liz before that maybe there's a phenomenon where like, oh, if you're not a great storyteller, but you're an okay storyteller, a way to make sure that you get on the uh, the docket every week is host your own show – Stuff it full of 
people who you know are talented so that the audience won't be unhappy and it gives you a platform to kind of get better at your duties. And we were talking a little bit about this because I can see some of the weaknesses performing wise in terms of like keeping the show going and all that sort of like type of performing stuff on stage. But I always tell people whenever they see a great show, but they think the host is okay. Um, and I told you that you two, this, I think is sometimes like the producer role of the host. If you still enjoyed the show, that is also, you got to give that up for the host as well. If they yeah. put that building. Oh, for sure, yeah. and, for sure. and hosting is hard. I mean, yeah. I've watched not just here, but MCs at comedy open mic nights. Like you have to try and bridge gaps between all of these they're not, I mean, at how I learned, they sort of connect, but you have to sort of bring everything together and keep the mood going. And I do think that Blaze Movie had a little bit of a tru- trouble with that, but she's clearly done this for years right. and has a great arsenal of people to support her and you know, and, and she packed the room. I mean, yeah, the room is packed. Doing a show for seven years also is a credit to a host. Before yeah. we move on, there, there's two things I did want to say. I guess coming to the, at this more from like the the comedian side is that uh, I wanted to mention that Ginny's story about the uh, garlic clove in her vagina to cure a yeast infection. I saw her do that story once at an open mic with five people there, and then I got to see her do that same story in front of a, the packed room at Union Hall, which is something as a performer I, I always love seeing. It like literally like makes my heart sing to see that. The other thing I did want to mention is that if you have any curiosity about how I learned, it is a podcast that so you can get on iTunes. You can listen to many old performances from the How I Learned series. Oh, that's great. We'll include links to that in our episode description this week. That sounds good. David and me saw VHS Presents, which is hosted by Nissa Greenberg and Angel Yao. It is the fourth Saturday of every month of Videology in Williamsburg. The gist of that show is it is storytellers telling stories involving old videos of the performer, which they show at the show when you're there. Is it, I'm sorry, is it videos of them performing or just videos of... It's videos of I have seen people having fits in the middle of acapella shows in high school <laughs> or people singing Rent when they're 14 and they don't know what they're singing about. It's embarrassing yes. old videos. It is kind of like mortified with multimedia. Oh, okay. Although some of, the show, some of the stories we saw this week were videos that they had made when they were kids or when they were younger that they were in, but it wasn't... It, it's not just... Videos like here was me in a performance. Sometimes it was like here's me as a upcoming video auteur. Oh, nice. Okay. Which yeah, which are always good when it's uh, when you thought you had a great artistic idea. It's not always like also Nissa Greenberg, the host, had just his father talking to him as a baby, asking him about like what do you think about the stock market crash, and it was <laughs> kind of him being like, this is what I had to deal with growing up with my weird father that I love, but also he kind of fucked me up. That's the kind of stories you would see at, at VHS Presents. I just want to add that VHS Presents is a presentation of the tank, although it takes place at Videology. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about who we saw at Videology? Absolutely. We saw Harmon Leon, who had this video of him covering a Christian-style wrestling show in the Deep South. We saw Caitlin Brodnick, who had a video of her singing in the background in the chorus for the Christmas in Washington special on TNT with like Christine Aguilera and Billy Gilman and Usher performing. I already mentioned Nissa and his father talking to him as a baby. Angel Yao, another one of the co-hosts, had a video about how she always hated being on camera and her trying to do a news report in high school and flubbing the lines over and over and over and over. 
and uh, uh, this last comic, whose name I stupidly forgot to write down, had a video project that involved uh, farting puppets and Independence Day footage. That one was interesting. <laughs> the curious thing to me is that this is in a show that's in a second year, and it revolves around video, and it is a bar called Videology that revolves around video, and yet the tech was so problematic it kept not Aww. working. The storyteller who told the story about wrestling. Harmon Leon, yeah. His story, he is clearly such a good storyteller. And he was so undermined by incapable tech that it just ruined his whole story. I felt so bad was for him. Was he just not able to play it? Well, his his shtick is that he tells story while there's a PowerPoint running. And in the PowerPoint, there are embedded videos. Mm. And the tech guy just couldn't get them to play on cue, they ran the wrong kind of wire from the computer to the stereo, oh. so it wasn't the stereo wire, so one of the channels was missing, so we missed half the sound. It was oh. just it was just like a, a performer's nightmare because it was totally out of his control. And even though the crowd was very supportive of him, and he's clearly a very talented storyteller, it, it just – it ruined any chance of that story – having the impact that it should have. And I just, I felt really bad. Harmon Leon, by the way, I should say, uh, is all over the place. He has this really unique brand of this, like gonzo journalism and infiltrating. I, I feel like I've seen him, but I can't think of what he looks like. Yeah. That name is so familiar. He actually like has, with dreads. Uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> okay. his is, uh, he looks like an alcoholic scarecrow. I must've heard him do that line on stage <laughs> a million times. Pretty easy to remember that. And then was it Dan, the one who did the, the farting puppets? Yeah. So for his, for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, he chose to use like a wireless headset mic and he framed it as though he was going through his mom's basement or garage or something to find this video, sort of like a little actorly in ways that really it didn't need. But in order to do that, he had this weird headset mic thing, which just had terrible sound. And so we would have been able to hear him better had he just spoken without a mic. And I get that he was going for some kind of effect, but it... It made it really hard to understand him, coupled with a fairly nonsensical video. It, I, I like totally checked out during his piece and just started reading my email. Yeah, dance was rough for me too, but um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that's a great example of at some of these storytelling shows sometimes, especially in a room like Videology, that I think can like top out at forty or fifty people. Like the stakes are a little lower. You are going to try something crazy for better and for worse. I thought Caitlin Brodnick's was the better example of that because that was a blast watching her run around, just po- pointing at herself on this TNT broadcast. <laughs> she was great. Yeah. She seemed to me like she was maybe a step more advanced than most of the other people there. I mean, I would put Armin in the same league as her, except that because the tech problems clearly weren't his fault. Um, but the two of them felt like they were, I mean, professional is probably not the right word, but they, they seemed a little more rehearsed and again this is one where like uh god angel's piece just was painful for me to watch she just not in the intended uh way not in the intended way she she just had a hard time getting the story out and it wasn't really clear that there was a beginning middle or end and she showed some pictures and she showed some videos and that was fine but they they didn't really all tie together and it was just it, it was Maybe it was just that this was the like very beginning first draft of an idea that she will continue to develop and will get better. I don't know. We talked about this one of the nights, uh, how in stand-up, often people will 
try out their material somewhere small and then develop it and refine it and refine it until it becomes part of their like standard show and then it gets onto an album and it gets into a special. And I, I get the sense with storytellers that at least some of them do the same thing. And we'll, it's pretty similar, yeah. yeah. And so that's the hard thing to know. You know, oh gosh, are we seeing like the very first draft of something that has potential, or is this just someone who uh, threw something together or isn't very good? Well, kind of the spin on that, a bit of my insider perspective. Um, I have seen Angel perform at Littlefield with like 300 people there and bring the house down with something that I had seen her do at like more of videology. And like I said, I, Ginny Lease, I saw her perform this story for five people at the Pit Loft yeah. before she did it at Union Hall with all these packed. So I think, yeah, over the aid and videology might be a little more the let's see how the body mic works. <laughs> the body mic did not work. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to say that I have seen other uh, shows at videology, and they also had tech problems, which is weird if you're going to be a video place. But It's there in the name, right? right. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because it's so, like, gorgeously designed the space yeah like it's a really like slick looking bar did y'all did y'all sit in the little like hot tub seats that are in the back? i love those i yeah. love those and i do wow it's just funny just because the you said that that night and hearing it again the two times no i've done three or four shows of videology and had no tech problems huh. and yeah. and don't get me wrong i have seen Worse tech problems oh, sure. than what we saw at Videology, like at that venue. It's it does have tech problems, but now I'm just like knocking on wood here <laughs> that that never happened. So should we go into the Liar Show, which was the last group show that we saw, which has also been around since I think 2006. Wow, yeah, ten years um, this summer. Ten years this summer, they were saying, uh, and it's a little more structured game show than I think the other group shows. So they bring in uh, four storytellers who each tell a, I don't know, five, ten minute story. And then they clear the stage. You take a little break. They come back. They bring all four of them on. And you have time to ask them questions to determine whose story was totally made up. And so they take questions from the audience that you can ask whoever you want. And then everyone has a ballot and you vote for who you think is the liar. And then they reveal it. And if you win, you got a t-shirt. We all got t-shirts because we all guessed correctly. That was the, the nicest surprise. I thought they had one t-shirt and they were going to pull out of a hat. But no, yeah. everyone who guessed we right. We all got t-shirts. And guys, it's on the honor system. And it's a show called The Liar Show. So if you want a t-shirt. <laughs> just say it. Just yeah. go. Just go get a shirt. I wanted to say that... Um, so Adam Wade, I guess I could spoil it. It's not like they're going to do this exact evening again. Right. Adam Wade was the liar. Adam Wade was the liar. And, and Adam Wade is a 20-time moth storytelling champ. He's been on Inside Amy Schumer. And I personally know him. Uh, he's a very kind guy. Is and he I, that awkward in real life or is that part of the story? Um, I would say in real life, sure. I think <laughs> I, think I got – It was endearingly awkward. Yeah. yeah he was kind I, of like a Chris Gethardy exactly. type. And I definitely got, have got an act acclimated to whatever awkwardness uh there there is there and he is a really kind guy and when we sat down because i jeff Zimmerman, who's on the bill is like a little more rough and tumble guy he made a joke about him doing social media for the hell's angels <laughs> uh which is an apt description and i was hoping so 
much that Adam would be the liar. And he was. And he actually did a pretty good job telling the story about ripping off his coworkers of a $50,000 Powerball winning ticket, which is was a great story. And even when he was telling it, I'm like, man, if this is true, that's insane that this guy, that this guy who is like, got a coffee with me, been this nice guy, mm-hmm. would have done this. But then, you know, he was the liar. Yeah. yeah um, I, I think the quality of stories that we got in this show, I don't know if this, because this one is sort of the oldest of the four that we've seen. Uh, but I thought the quality of the stories were really great. Um, also, our storytellers were slightly older, I think, than we had seen. And the audience. And the audience as well. Uh, I think they did a wonderful job. And I also – so we had Jeff Sermon, Joanne Solomon, Gail Thomas, and Adam Wade. Um, Gail Thomas also co-hosted with Gastor Alamante. They were wonderful hosts. They were they were great. Um I want to point out Joanne Solomon's story in particular. I really, hers was about um, when she was pregnant and losing like baby onesies in a fire in her house and the sprinklers going off and just all of the. And having a vanishing twin. Oh, right. She had a vanishing vanishing twin. Did we mention her husband fainting yet? Her husband fainted. I mean, it was just. But hers was almost the. uh, Compared to a lot of the solo uh, storytellings that we saw. Hers was very serious, I thought, or like it was less comedic. Oh my god, this wacky stuff happened. It was just sort of a really beautiful story. I thought. Although told I mean, with with humor, yes, with humor. But for some reason, it had more of a resonance to me than a lot of like. Here's this wacky thing that happened. It was like here was my journey working on like dealing with my pregnancy and with my boyfriend, but also. You know, I was fighting with my mother-in-law. Although we also heard a story about someone struggling with testicular cancer. So, you know. That's true. That's yeah, true. Jeff, Jeff Zimmerman's story did have, and again, it walked that line. It Venn diagrammed. Drink up, listeners. Uh, <laughs> but he yeah, walked it with talking about having cancer and then ended with him thinking he found a, another tumor in his butt. But it ended up being an undigested piece of shrimp. An entire shrimp. Which I still don't understand. No, I just think it maybe fell down his pants. That's what I think. That's my theory. But I I don't know. also think, because part of me was wondering, I had never seen The Liar Show before. I was wondering if it was possible that they were lying about just parts of their story. I don't don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, because I think when we were, when they took the little break to... I meant if he put that in there. Yeah, to fill out the ballot... um, I said, you know, I th- I'm pretty sure it's Adam Wade, the guy who lied about the story about the Powerball. But I thought, Gail Thomas, who told a great story about trying to get to the Taj Mahal when she was uh, in India. And I thought, that's a story where I can believe 70% of this and maybe 30% of it is a lie. And is that enough to for it to be the liar do, do on we the show? Me- do we mention the Q&A section? Yeah. Okay. The interrogation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that I... It's- I liked about the show was that whole like audience interaction because it forces you to be a little more keyed into the stories as they're telling them. And then people really get into the Q and a, yeah, there was, there was a lot of questioning actually about Joanne Solomon's pregnancy story because she talked about her, a fire in her house, setting off the sprinklers and the sprinklers soaked all the rugs and then they induced labor. So she didn't have a lot of carpeting. So her, her boyfriend went out and bought carpets at ABC Carpet. I wondered right. if, and so everyone was like, "How much were the carpets? How did he buy so many carpets if he was what walking? Did they look like? How many were? There? How many were there? <laughs> because yeah. it was pretty clear that her whole story was true. But that's the thing I had wondered if they were just like, if maybe they curated it to be like, make something in it seem a little lie. Well, I'm sure they you know? they ask you to to try to walk that line. Yeah. yeah. I also 
I, I don't know. I just feel like it would take serious cojones to get up there and tell a story about a miscarriage or a story about cancer and have those be the liars. Like, yeah. I, I, and maybe, maybe that's part of the, the gambit that they're playing, but. I wonder in the 10 years they had to have done something like that. That sure. sounds like like some might find it a bad taste, but that could be a lot of fun. Well, and even if, if like, Jeff Zimmerman, who had the, the testicular cancer story, there was a moment, like, he was telling this great story about, you know, how he was dealing with that. But then he had this amazing story in the middle about the couple that he runs into at chemo who basically, like, fight and leave each other in the middle of the waiting room. And I thought, well, maybe that's the lie. Maybe huh. maybe everything else is true, and that that's the lie of his story. Um, I just want to say that the stories that we heard at the Liar Show, especially the two that we've talked the most about, reminded me a lot of Risk, which is a show that we did not get to go see, but does have a podcast. They just moved to the Bell House. Are they? They're monthly. It's they are monthly. It's also mm-hmm. last yep. Wednesday of the yeah. month. Um, so if you're interested in the kind of stories that Liz is mentioning, where they're a little more heartfelt and a little more serious, although with humor. Um, the whole idea behind Risk is stories that um, are risky for the teller to tell that you wouldn't hear on NPR, they usually say. And it was interesting. to I didn't expect those kind of stories at this kind of show. But again, we talk about the ways in which stories might get used in multiple places. Like those very, very much felt like Risk stories to me. Yeah. You know, I thought the How I Learned stories were very fun to yeah, me and funny. very moth style. Yeah, and that the show, the stories from Liar just had a little bit more emotional resonance. They're more ones that I'm, I remember better. Yeah. The other thing is we mentioned how at the Liar show the audience was a little bit older than we had seen in other places, uh, as were the, the storytellers. And, and personally, I thought that was a good thing. I thought that it actually... I think the stories that we heard were the most like mature and fully developed. And I don't know if that's because yeah. the storytellers were the most mature and fully developed or simply because the gamification of the evening means that people really bring their a game because they want to, they want to be the ones who trick the audience. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about the diversity of the storytellers and the diversity of the audience in general. And every mm-hmm. show we saw, there were definitely a mix of men and women on the stage. Most of the shows we saw, also made an effort to not have all white uh, casts of the, of storytellers, um, and I would say that at pretty much every show we saw, the audience reflected whatever we saw on the stage. So, like at Ass, where it was sort of young gun fratish people on stage, that was also pretty much the audience. At the Liar Show, where it was uh, an older crowd on stage, I would say that we weren't unique in being among the younger people in the audience, definitely like the group that was sitting next to us was as yeah. well. But I would say that the median age of the audience was definitely on the other side of 40. Yeah. I mean, it felt more like the audience I'm used to when I go to a comedy show. Oh, where, really? Yeah. Where I feel like the audience is a little more diverse, a little, you know, yeah. than, than when I go see, I don't know, when I go to the public. Right. Or, you know. Uh, any other thoughts on audience diversity, performer diversity? Uh, no. I mean, I was, I was pleasantly surprised actually with the amount of, you know, men and women. I, I would have loved to see more uh, people of color performing, but you know, I, I was impressed that it wasn't. I mean, I was when we started this. I was like, I just don't want to go see a show that's just a whole bunch of white dudes telling stories. As a listener and, of this show, I actually was like, all right, I have to try to do as good of a job as I can in these two weeks. Yeah, well, <laughs> and when I asked people for suggestions, I was like, please 
like I want to focus on finding these shows that have more diversity to them because I know there's a thousand shows out there that are just a bunch of white dudes talking. And that's the name of my new show, White Dudes Talking. <laughs> yeah, and even as a as a white dude, I I know. I mean, it happens with everyone. I just know so many people are like. Sometimes if I'm at a bill and the third balding, angry white guy gets on stage, <laughs> after a while, I just can't listen anymore. Yeah. I absolutely get where that comes from. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we talked about this a little bit. I think we touched on this in an earlier episode. I cannot remember which one. Uh, we talked about. You know, the way to get diverse voices, voices on stage is to sort of self-produce. And so I think a storytelling show like this, which we talked about is very minimal production value. You don't really have to bring anything but yourself. And is a way to bring those voices on stage very easily by just making a spot. And I also think that, and David, correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the ways that storytellers end up in these shows is by going to shows, getting to know people, networking, schmoozing, and... I imagine that the less that the people who are currently on stage look like you, the harder that is for people to want to show up. I think it's actually very similar in cabaret group shows where often the people who end up in those shows are people who are like friends with the director or friends with the producer. I know that when I put on shows, we start from a place of we want to make sure that we have a diverse group of people on stage. And if that means having to try harder, look deeper, network outside of my own contacts and comfort zones, and so be it. Um, and I wonder to what extent, you know, you also put on these shows. And so can you talk a little bit about, like, how do you find the people who, who end up on your stage? I The term I use is showing face. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a lot about showing face. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, going to, like you said, other people's shows to potentially get on that show. Or if you are a producer, booking someone who you know they had a show. Or if someone has you on their show, trying to get them back, you know, uh, you know, getting them on your show. So, yeah, there there is a lot of that. And um, I like to think that does, like, breed a, a, a good culture, especially, like, a, that it's not this, like, impenetrable wall of, like, sometimes I do go to theater shows, and it is at something small. I'd be like, wow, it would be great to do a one-person show here. And then, I, you know, that's never going to happen. Like, showing face here doesn't mean anything. I'm just another person. And that... It doesn't necessarily mean that it is like at the small level we're showing face. Like I, I was on risk from showing face stuff like this. I know people who have been on like the moth again, but the moth that is baked in the crust is like a, a mic at heart that turned like there's story slam and there's grand slam. Um, For those th- who aren't familiar with the moth, they have a a mix of storytellers that they recruit to tell stories that have been thoughtfully rehearsed, and then open mics that are again there's sort of a gamification to it where they have these story slams the winners then uh like on jeopardy get to repeat uh to to compete again in uh finals which end up to the grand slam and then grand slam winners uh, often become some of the ongoing storytellers i want to chip something in uh, that's kind of adjacent to the diversity conversation is in full disclosure, I just want to say what these shows cost. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Ass and VHS Presents are both free, and they always are free. Um, how I learned at Union Hall it was 7 in advance, 10 the day of, which I think is like standard Union Hall price. If it's not like, oh, my God, they're playing Union Hall, famous person. Uh, mm-hmm. Liar show was $10 with a $10 minimum at Cornelia Street Cafe. Yeah. So let's transition now into talking about solo shows. Uh, so... It was interesting when trying to find solo shows, 
we had it was a little challenging because we were specifically looking for you know not the balding white guy shows although I love that this is becoming a theme you know, of this show. By although, the way. Although, that I put that down, and there it goes. Which again, not nothing against balding white guys. And one of our solo shows, <laughs> we love balding white guys. One of our solo shows was a white guy. Hey, I'm here, right? Um, <laughs> and that's uh, it's just that we didn't want to do only that, and it was a little challenging because I think solo shows tend to have longer runs and therefore tend to be booked less frequently because there's only so many theater spaces, etc. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass. Liz, why don't you take this away? <laughs> okay. So uh, the first one that David and I, David Levy and I went and saw was uh, Salt in the Pepper Shaker, which was sort of what I picture a solo show. This is the type of show that I imagine. So uh, Jason Specklin, who wrote and performed it, is a, a nice white Jewish man uh, who married into a very large, very traditional christian jamaican family and in 2013 he went to his wife's family reunion and it was all about his sort of i mean well it is it's a fish out of water experience um involves a lot of clonopin and a couple of accidents and uh not seeing niagara falls there's just all these little stories within it that bridged his experience uh, of connecting with his wife and his wife's very different family. So I'm pretty sure that this show came out of SoloCom, which is a sort of festival of solo shows that they do at the pit. They've been doing for a couple of years now. And so that I think was the premiere of it. And then they did it a couple nights at the pit again, as its own like standalone piece and it was interesting to see this for me. What I I'd seen Jason Speckland before. I think he's very funny. He's a very good storyteller. And it was interesting to watch how this piece is developing because it clearly has places to go. It's still a work in progress. But the kernels were there. You could tell that he is a good performer and that the story is funny. What and venue was it at? It was at the pit. Oh, okay. On the, oh, main, on the, on the, on the main stage, yeah. I would say that what was interesting to me is that, like you said, he had the anecdotes that were strong. I don't think he quite knows what the story is yet. Right. I think he's still trying to figure out what, how to place these things together to make some kind of larger meaning or larger arc. Yeah, it was like the the bits were there. It was the finding the right pacing. And I think that is key to a lot of the stories that we saw is the pacing and what anecdotes go where and sort of puzzling it all together. Um and I'm curious, and maybe there isn't an answer to this, but how do you know when you're buying a ticket for a show if it's something that's still very much a work in progress or something that is polished and ready to go and professional and whatever? To me, a lot of the time, it would depend on time and venues. So this was on yeah. this was on Pit Striker. What time uh, week or it was, a, day? it was a later show? Not yeah. it was like a nine it was a seven. Right? It was seven o'clock on oh. a Sunday. I have the Facebook event up. That's what okay. I'm looking. At. Yeah, it was seven seven on a Sunday. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the the and venue price and determines the that price. a lot too. Right. To, to use this maybe the five dollar show. I think. Yeah, to use maybe the biggest example of the of like the the maybe the most popular person that people call a storyteller. 
Uh, Mike Birbiglia, you could have seen him at Cherry Lane in the studio for $20 or at Union Hall for 15 or 20 a few years ago. And he was doing, thank God for jokes, when he was working it out, which is now at Lynn Redgrave Theater for definitely not 15 or $20. Yeah, no. Yeah, so that's another way to kind of parse that. Uh, Birbiglia, obviously, a huge example of that. Yeah, but... I would also, I would look at the the length of the run too. This was like a one a one oh, off, uh, a one off performance of it. Whereas a lot of these other solo shows we saw are a two week run, and then like Homecoming King, which you're going to talk about yeah, in a second, was a month, right? It was a month, and then they took some time off, and then they brought it back at another venue, and it's closing again, and or I think it, it's closed, it closed now. Yeah, it just closed. But I'm pretty sure it's going to come back in another iteration. Right, and so, he's also developing that at Sundance for a film version. Yeah. So Homecoming King, you may remember from one of our previous comedy episodes where Elise talked about it, is Hassan Minaj's solo show, which was developed out of a shorter story that he told on one of the NPR podcasts, I believe. And... It is a story about growing up as a first-generation Indian-American immigrant and what in a mostly white suburb and what it's like to figure out that everyone thinks of you as being different. and Sort of learning what racism is yeah. like, in a sad way. But he's very funny. He's, he's a very good storyteller. Very cute, too. He is very cute. <laughs> very married. Um, but uh, and we want to talk about diversity. This Now, we saw it on one of the last nights of this run, but mm-hmm. it was a packed house. And it was a very diverse house. Not just a very diverse one. I mean, like, there were a lot of Indian faces, which is sort of natural for someone like Hassan Minaj, who is a very, very public Indian-American um, celebrity. But I would say that it was... Beyond that, also diverse with all sorts of other kinds of people, which was nice to see. Yeah. Now, when Elise saw this and talked about it on the podcast before, she felt that it was a little underdeveloped. Like, he had this core story that had been told before, and he was struggling to find ways to make it into a full-length evening. I think by the time that Liz and I saw it, it felt really, really developed. Like, it felt like a full-length evening that made sense that went together. Um, It... It took a long time into the evening before we got to the part of the story that I already knew. And Can I ask, did yep. she see it when she, when he was doing it eight nights a week, or was he still doing one-nighters of it? I believe it was eight nights a week, I believe. It was... I think it was the the previous run of yeah. it okay. that she saw it. Because that is another thing uh, that I just wanted to mention, kind of going back to the like when what stage of development. Because sometimes, I think Brian LaBelle actually brought this up on this very show. Sometimes you were just strapped into this one-nighter thing where those shows can be like, this is my chance to work it out. And and even if it's only been done three or four times, it might be further along than... I know it's like throwing fire at no, the how I, do you I think, know? We're, I think we, we are pretty sure that this has been further developed than what she's yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny because for me, this felt the most like a stand-up show or watching a stand-up special where... At the top, there's some jokes and some comments and some short stories. And then once you get into that tail end is one overarching story that's the big kicker at the end. Then good night, folks, and you're done. Right. Definitely had the rhythm of a stand-up show. It had the rhythm of a stand-up show. This guy guy has some comedy TV credentials, right? Right. He's on The Daily Show. Right. And it was directed by Greg Wallach, who is someone who spans the – the worlds of storytelling and comedy and one person shows. So I think that 
part of what they're doing is figuring out how much of this is a stand-up show and how much of this is a storytelling show. Yeah, it felt like with the staging of it, so they brought down a projection screen. Projection's very common in these storytelling uh, venues, I feel like. You kind of need a little audiovisual. But it felt like they were trying to make it a show by giving it staging and saying this is a storytelling performance, not stand-up, by giving him some blocking sort of right although not not a lot certainly not, not compared to Mothershock, which we'll talk about right next. right um but giving it some blocking giving it lighting cues giving it trying to make it more theatrical which i don't know if i felt like it needed and i don't know that it necessarily did feel any more theatrical Huh. This is on the main stage. Yes, it's yeah, on Colin it, Quinn's set, just with the with the screen covering. Yeah, most of it. and again, I I sadly did not see any of the three solo shows uh, you folks saw, but I do wonder sometimes if they beef up things for a bigger space. Like I saw Colin Quinn working out New York Story at Creek in the Cave with just him and a microphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, free again to go back to that, and now it's like eighty five dollars at uh, at uh, Cherry Lane. And from what I hear, there's like a set and slides yeah. and all this yeah. stuff because sometimes I guess you do have to fill it up maybe. Yeah. Sure, and I think if you're charging that kind of money, people want to see what their money Definitely. is going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say though, I really liked Hasan Minaj's show. I thought Homecoming King, even though it had the rhythm of stand-up, I thought that it still had the arc of storytelling. I thought all the stuff that came before the core story still felt like it was laying the ground for that core story. It talked a lot about his relationship with his father, a lot about how he learned what it meant to be an American, how it learned what it meant to be Indian, so that when he got to this core story, which is about being made to feel like an outsider in the school that he had been at his entire life, we understood the stakes and we understood where he was coming from. And then there was also like an epilogue to that story that was not in the version that I originally heard, uh, which I thought felt like a good natural extension of the story. It also did that thing, which I think is important for storytellers, where it, up until that point, you're very much on his side and you sort of felt bad for him and like he was the victim. And then we see that like, oh, he actually was a little bit of an asshole too. Yeah. Are you talking about... Um, what happened as, when he grew up? Yeah, with the with the Twitter and the, yes. the tweets and stuff. Yeah. I think it was great the way that they continued that story and let it go, especially what happens to someone who puts a story like that about themselves out into the public and becomes sort of a public figure and how that how that changes the way that we hear the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to interject with something you mentioned about how you could listen to a part of the story in This American Life. It's just something that really excites me about storytelling. I've been to risk and have my mind blown by something, and I wait seven days. And if someone's like I, – I, I'll, I'll be like telling them about the great show I saw. I'm like, you know what? Forget it. Just listen right here. And – Theater, I wish, had the equivalent. Yes, you can go to Lincoln Center and watch on the teeny little screen. Mm. And I am going to probably miss Curious Incident. I have that play, and I will be able to read it. But that's not quite the same permanent record story. Although there is, uh, for Curious Incident specifically, that was filmed for NT Live. Oh, and see, theater has stuff like that. But storytelling is filled with just like, oh, forget it. Here's the video of it. Oh, forget Mm. it. Here's the podcast of it. And it's free, and it's instantly accessible. Exactly. The accessible to get you in that room is... Is, is pretty good, I think. Yeah. All right, we've got one more show to talk about. we got one more. Uh, so I think this was actually my favorite of all the stuff that we checked out. This was Mother Struck, which is uh, written and performed by Stacey and Chin. It was directed by Cynthia Nixon. This had all the uh, drama last year and got delayed and now came back. And so Stacey and Chin is sort of from 
the poetry world. Uh, she was the Deaf Poetry Jam for a while. Uh, you can find a ton of her stuff on YouTube, which is exactly what I looked up after we saw this show. Uh, and it's her story of what happens when a activist, an activist militant uh, feminist lesbian in New York in the 90s decides she wants to have a baby. So it starts with her experience living in Jamaica growing up and um, everyone telling her not to get pregnant and she's uh, terrified of becoming pregnant. Then she realizes she's a lesbian and is like, awesome, I'm never getting pregnant and, and deals with, but then deals with all of the uh, homophobia that comes with her life in Jamaica, brings her to New York uh, and the the vibrant art scene here and then finally deciding that she does want to have a baby and how the hell does she do that? She has this, she marries a gay man um, and they have this sort of Neo family at his house with, what is it? It's him, her, his brother, her girlfriend and his, his mom all living together. And so it, it's, I thought it was just a beautiful story about, family and how we create our own families. She goes back to Jamaica at one point, which was a very touching moment. And she's a phenomenal storyteller. She is just, she busts out the door. She is operating at 200% and she kind of doesn't let up for two hours. I thought going into this, I can't believe there's a solo show that's going to be two hours. And how is she going to maintain this? Intermission? There was an intermission. With an intermission. And that I was worried about, too, because I thought, okay, if she keeps this and it's going, 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 it's just one person. And then they've taken intermission and just the bottom could drop out. Like, who knows? Um, but she was a great performer. As you mentioned earlier, I think this was the most theatrical of what we saw. It was very clearly choreographed. There's she a lot the of space really well. She used the space, a very simple round set. But she was she had so much energy, she was, like, in the audience half the time, just all over the place. Um, very specific lighting cues, a lot of uh, curated sound uh, and atmosphere work. And yet it was very much a storytelling show. Yeah. She did not ever really like take on the voices of other characters, certainly. I mean, maybe for a line or two here and there, yeah. but it wasn't like, and now I'm going to do 10 minutes as my auntie. Like It wasn't that kind of show at all. It was, it was I'm telling you my story, but she's so kinetic. Mm-hmm. Like, it just, there's so much energy and motion and... And she's got such a dynamic way of speaking. It was it was it was incredible. Did yeah. Motherstruck have any multimedia? No, no, no. There's, well, there was a sound. There, there was an elaborate sound plot, but there was no no projection. No visuals. Like that. Though she does. I mean, spoiler alert: she has a baby. Um, and in the lobby afterwards, she shows all these videos that she's made with her daughter. And I, I wish I could remember what the series is called, but it's all on YouTube, and it's like lessons in activism with her and her daughter talking about like you don't let people touch you and it's okay to say no and all these like really great lessons that you're teaching a child and it's the two of them talking about them and they are wonderful and they play those in the lobby after the show so this show is now closed in new york but i know that as a performer station tends to tour so i'm hoping that this show tours before we 
sign off totally. First of all, David, tell us about the story show that you host regularly. I have two monthly shows that I host. One of them is a 100% a mic. It's the Astoria Bookshop Storytelling Show. That's the second Tuesday of every month. And then on the fourth Tuesday of every month at QED, also in Astoria, Queens, is Fast Track, which is a half-booked, half-open mic show. Those are the two that I host every month. Yeah, I would say I'm surprised that we did not get out to QED with all of this the storytelling because they do a lot of storytelling. Yeah, David tried. He, David, he tried to David get us tried. out to Queens, and I was a no, little but, it's like I can't go to both Williamsburg and Queens in the same week. <laughs> I know. Come on, De Blasio, yeah. build that uh, that train you want to build to connect the two, right? But but QED is a great space. I've been there a couple times. I love it. It's really cute. It's like a coffee shop, bookshop. They've got food. They've got drinks. They have a nice little stage in the back. Um, and I've done spoiler. I've done David's uh, open mic fast track. Really? Once I did. Oh, I, I did. I went and told a story. Covers balloon. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I just. I was what I was. I was like. I have this story. It's kind of weird. I'm just gonna try it out, and it went over fairly well which to, was the night my met, own shoulders that was the night i met that was my garrison keeler moment like oh, oh wow that voice that's <laughs> a person like, it's me i've listened the to the show and talking about talking about my childhood pets that's what was my uh, it's yeah. funny too because on the first night that david and i went to a show together he asked me oh do you perform at all i was like well i, I host when i do cabaret but I'm like no not really i i have told one story once that uh, when i lived in boston there's a local storytelling circuit called mass mouth where they do a story slam and i told the story in a story slam once and that's pretty much my experience <laughs> but there's something about this environment that every night i was like oh, i could see i could see myself telling this story in this venue or like oh i've got a great video that i should take to vhs and I was like, wait but this i don't i don't i'm not a storyteller but it, it is there's something very welcoming and inviting uh, and empowering about yeah you know, that shows. actually is is a reason i one person alone on stage talking to a group of people why it's my favorite thing is because i think it elevates everyone's story in the room the amount of times that yes being inspired to get up on that stage the amount of times i've gone to a good storytelling show and at the bar afterwards everyone i went with is telling me things they had never told me in the first place it, it just has that power yeah i have to say so i i don't remember much because i kind of blacked it out uh, when i went and told the story but i walked up and uh, talking about my pets i think the first thing i said was i was a pretty ugly child i don't believe that well, at the when I had braces and glasses, and I was pigeon-toed and scoliosis. So, like, <laughs> guys, it was it was bad. But it was very freeing to walk up and just be like, it was atrocious. And people laughed, and they were like, oh. But it felt good to just get up there and be like, this is me. Yeah. I love also just seeing someone uh, take ownership of something like that. Yeah, it was, it was just very empowering to get up and just fucking own it. Especially for me, coming from the more comedy side of things, I once saw a woman come up and tell a story about getting groped on the subway. Like, you would, you hear that. It's obviously no laughing matter. But she was telling it in this really funny way that I just got the sense that this was an ownership moment through these laughs. That is awesome. Just one of my favorite things I could see on a stage anywhere is like, how are we laughing about this? And we are, and therefore, it's not so bad. Yeah, there's something very empowering about just claiming your stories in a space, I think.
Do you want to talk about what we're seeing in the next week or two? I absolutely do. Yeah. Uh, because I actually, it's funny, you know, uh, pretty much all the shows that I wanted to mention are free of straight white dudes. <laughs> uh, there's, there's talk therapy again at QED. I wanted to, uh, that's there. Um, it is the second Thursday of each month. It's hosted by this woman, Lori, Bar- Lori Bard. It's all true stories about mental health. It's actually a great example of something that walks that comedic and dramatic tightrope. And I was so bummed that I missed seeing all these solo performances with you. Uh, so I wanted to mention a few. Uh, the Tank, which David mentioned earlier, um, they had Solo Week a few months ago, and they're having Solo Week Redux, <laughs> Redo, uh, you know the word I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and The Tank is near 46th and 7th. It's in Midtown Manhattan. It's the weekend of February 12th through the 14th. Two shows of note that I want to mention. Of Cats and Men by Mark Abbott, which is on Friday the 12th. Mark Abbott, he's a, he's a black man who balances some tough-as-nail stories about growing up in the Bronx with his NYPD cop father, along with stories about his cat. There's <laughs> There Goes the Neighborhood by Michelle Carlo, which is on the 13th, uh, is a Latina woman about having a front row seat to Park Slope, Brooklyn's gentrification. And <laughs> Oh, wait. What's, what's the name of that show again? Uh, there Goes the Neighborhood by I, Mich- I Michelle Carlo. I think I Carlo. saw her first version of that at Solocom two years ago. It was great. And, oh, th- and just to say this again, like that's an example of I know she does that show every now and then, one-nighter, one-nighter, one-nighter. And that show is definitely developed, but there's not like this eight-show-a-week run, just to ring that bell again. And the last show I wanted to mention was the Frigid Festival is running February 15th through March 6th next month. Uh, Peach Fuzzy by Mark Pagan, a Latino guy. He's going to be at Under St. Mark's. It's his one-man show about his troubled relationship with his body hair. Huh. <laughs> uh, another show, while we're, while we're plugging shows that we didn't get to see, uh, we just by hair missed Awkward Sex in the City, which I've been trying to get whoa, to. Whoa, tell me about this. I want to know all about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, it's not about Sex in the City. I'm sorry, David. Oh. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, a bunch of women. I think it's all women. It is, yeah. Um, who just talk about their embarrassing, awkward, wonderful sex lives. And I've been dying to see it. I think they did it at Babeland at one point, which I think would be super fun to go to. Um, But it's a show I've been trying to catch, and it didn't work out for this episode, but I hear nothing but great things. So check them out. Anita Flores is a comedian who is a part of that show. And she is uh, the only Jeruvian I've ever met, if you want to talk about mixing it up ethnically at these shows. Yeah, Jewish father, uh, Peruvian mother. Well, I know a couple of Jeruvians. Yeah. Oh. Uh, anyway, um, I am back in the traditional theater mood this week. I'm seeing Cabin in the Sky at Encores on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I'll be at Huey at the booth, which is in previews now with uh, Forrest Whitaker. And... I'm excited. On Thursday, I'm also going to be at a special event where the cast of The Color Purple is going to listen to their cast album for the first time, and I get invited to go join them. Oh, they're going to be... Oh, So I'll be tweeting from that at Cast Albums on Twitter, so check that out. And then I will finally see The Color Purple, the show, hopefully a week Mm -hmm. later. On Thursday, kind of a storytelling show, sort of. Um, Bitch Seat, which I've mentioned before on here a few times. It's a lot of fun. They have a podcast now, too. Um, They are having their second birthday party at Poussin Rouge on Thursday. And I just got tickets to... I'm going to screw up this name. And Antilla Pneumatica, the new Ann Washburn 
that's going to be at Playwrights about East Texas friends with secrets. Oh, yeah. I just got tickets to that. And then I'm I'm doing a a very unusual show called The Last Class. Uh, It's a new company, Dodo uh, Theater Company, Joshua Conkle. It's him and uh, two other women who I don't know. And it's The Last Class, a jazzercise play. Huh. It's about jazzercise and Zumba. And Is that I, the one where you do jazzercise? I will be one of two people okay. uh, taking the jazzercise class in the show, during the show. I don't know how that's going to work. I'm going by myself because I don't want anyone to see me just like sweating like a stuck pig, which I'm afraid is what's going to happen. <laughs> um I just I have no idea what to expect, but it sounds really fun and weird, and I'm excited. All right, thank you so much for joining Thanks us, so David. Much, David. Thanks for listening, listeners. Thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Maximu Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe at iTunes and Stitcher, and if you can, rate and leave a review. Even if you don't listen to us on iTunes, you can leave us a rating there, and that helps other people find us. We really appreciate it. You can find all of us on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. I'm at It's DeLevy. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards. And David Lawson is at DT Lawson. That's D-T-L-A-W-S-O-N. Thanks a lot for joining us. See you next week. Theatrical Media.